So as you can see, we are continuing today in our study of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and having moved on from that section that we've been considering for quite some time, we come now to the 15th verse, and today we're going to be looking specifically at verses 15 through 19. And let me just quickly uh, refresh your memory. Uh, Paul, having opened this letter to the Ephesians by giving a long list of spiritual blessings, the spiritual blessings that belong to those who are in Christ, now he goes on to pray that his readers would be given the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that the eyes of their understanding would be enlightened so that they could know God in the profound way that he desires to be known. It never ceases to amaze me this whole thing about God's desire to know us and for us to know him. You know, when we, the more we understand who God is, the more baffling this whole thing becomes that uh, this, this God, this infinite God, this uh, all-sufficient God who, who doesn't need anything, who's perfectly contented uh, within himself, who's absolutely complete uh, in himself, yet he wants to know us and he wants us to know him. And that's really, uh, you know, just sort of the essence of what the whole biblical Revelation is all about that the true and the living God, the infinite almighty creator of all things wants to be in a personal relationship with us. Amazing, astounding. But again, this is what's communicated from cover to cover in the Bible. I think of that great prayer that Jesus prayed, recorded for us in John chapter 17. And there, as he's praying, he says, uh, speaking to the Father, you have given me authority over all flesh that I should give eternal life to as many as you have given me. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. So this is it, eternal life. That, of course, is... Um, the gift of God. But what is eternal life? Jesus said eternal life is knowing God. So God has extended this opportunity. He's given uh, this opportunity to us that we might know him. And John would later write in his uh, first epistle, uh, echoing really what Jesus said here, uh, where he said, and we know that the son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true. So God wants to know you and he wants to know me and he wants us to know him and not just in theory. He doesn't simply want us to know about him. He wants us to know him experientially and personally. Now, that's where Paul starts off his prayer here. But just a quick word on the prayer itself, or uh, not just this prayer, but, but other prayers in Scripture. The thing to remember when we're looking at these prayers, when we're uh, considering them, remember this, 
they are not merely the prayers of the person, in this case, Paul, but they are uh, prayers that are inspired by the Spirit. God had these things penned in his word uh, so we could get insight into the things that he wants for us because these words are a revelation of his will for us. Paul is praying for us, being led by the Spirit. He's praying for us according to the will of God. And when, when we're praying according to the will of God, that means that we're also praying with assurance that our prayers are being heard and are going to be answered. You know, one of the dilemmas that we sometimes have in prayer is that we don't really know if we're praying the right things, do we? You know, I have people ask me to pray for them quite often. And there are, of course, things that they're wanting to see God do. And there are things that I would agree that that would be great if God were to do that. But sometimes I find myself in the dilemma while I'm praying, you know, I'm not, I'm not really sure what God's will is in regard to this. And there are just things that we're not going to know exactly what God's will is. But these prayers here are prayers that we know are going to be heard. We know they're going to be answered because we are praying the will of God. This is what God desires. And as we're praying what he desires, as John told us, we're going to have the petitions that we have asked from him. Again, in 1 John uh, chapter 5, verses uh, 14 and 15, we read this. Now, this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. So whether it's this prayer here in the first chapter of Ephesians or another prayer somewhat like it in the third chapter that we'll get to eventually, or if it's the, the prayer that Paul prayed for the Philippians recorded in Philippians chapter one, or the prayer that he prayed for the Colossians recorded in Colossians chapter one, all of which are wonderful, wonderful prayers. Uh, as you look through those prayers, as you read them over, and as you pray them for people, know this, you're praying the will of God. And you can have that absolute confidence. You know, the Lord is going to do this because I'm asking him to do what he's already revealed that he desires to do. I'm so thankful for the many, many people that pray for us. And I'm told quite frequently by people that, uh, you know, I'm praying for you or, or we're praying for you. And I'm, I'm really so appreciative of that. And when I express thanks or appreciation, it's not, uh, you know, it's not just, uh, I'm not just saying it. I, I, I truly mean it. I am so thankful. Uh, and I'll tell you this, if, if you do pray for us or if you'd like to pray for us, and you're wondering, well, what can I pray for? Just open up to any one of these prayers I just mentioned and pray those things, and that will be absolutely sufficient. If, uh, if these are the prayers that are being prayed for me and for uh, my wife or my family, or these are the prayers that are being prayed for us as the uh, leadership of the church, oh, how thankful we are. 
These are amazing prayers. And so Paul begins the prayer. He says that it's after he heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. He says he does not cease to give thanks uh, for you, making mention of you in my prayers. And the first thing he prays, notice, is this, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. So the first thing that Paul prays for is spiritual illumination. Now, remember, we've already been told by the apostle all of these amazing blessings that belong to us in Christ. We've been told about the fact that we're, we're chosen in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. And we've looked at that. Uh, we were told about um, having you know, been predestined to be his children, having been uh, redeemed through the blood of Christ and had our sins forgiven and having and obtained an inheritance uh, in the Lord and then having been sealed by the Spirit. So he's told us all of these amazing things, but now... What he's doing is he's praying that everything that we have learned, it would translate from our heads and that it would impact us in our hearts. That's what he's praying for. He's praying for spiritual illumination, that we would, we would really get to the fullest extent all that God has done for us. And, you know, we can't even get that, according to Paul here, uh, by merely studying the text, there has to be the additional element of the Spirit's illumination. So we have to have the Spirit of wisdom and revelation, the Holy Spirit working together. And, you know, that is our prayer. That's my prayer for my own uh, personal time in God's Word. Before I open it and begin to meditate on it, I'm praying, Lord, give me understanding. Like the psalmist did. I think of uh, David in Psalm 119. He said, Lord, your hands have fashioned me. You've made me. So now, Lord, give me understanding of your truth. And that's the way we should approach the word. That's the way I approach things when I'm preparing to uh, you know, bring God's word to you. Lord, I need uh, wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of these things. And Lord, your people, they need that assistance of your spirit when the word comes as well. And so we, we pray before we bring the word. And then, you know, after the fact, you know, when I go home on Sundays and finally put my head on my pillow at, uh, you know, before I fall asleep, not only thanking the Lord for what he did today, but just then again saying, Lord, now bring the things that we heard, bring those things home to our hearts. Give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Illuminate us. And where Paul says here, where he speaks of the eyes of our understanding, that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, the word understanding here is the, the Greek word for heart. 
And so this could literally be translated, and it is in some other versions, it's translated, open the eyes of our heart. Remember, we used to sing that song, open the eyes of my heart, Lord, taken right here from this passage. But that's the idea that we would be, be given that insight, again, that's more than head knowledge, we, we make that distinction sometimes. We say, well, you know, that person's got a lot of head knowledge, but I don't know if it's really uh, trickled down to their heart. Well, we need head knowledge because it's through the head that it eventually makes its way to the heart. But we don't want the knowledge to just stop with the head. In other words, we don't want it to just be information. We don't want it to just be theoretical. You know, there are lots of people who have lots of information in their brains, spiritual information, even theological information. There are people called theologians who have a ton of information packed into their brains, but in some cases, it's never moved from their head to their heart. So it's never impacted their life. And you see, it's only when it comes home to the heart that's when the transformation takes place. That's when my life is changed. So I, I want to make sure that it's not just head knowledge that I'm gaining, but that my heart is being impacted as well. And, and that happens, Paul believed, through prayer. So as a preacher and a minister and a pastor and a, and a missionary and everything else Paul was, this is, this is what he did. He not only delivered the word, but then he prayed that the Holy Spirit would bring it home to the hearts of his uh, hearers. And so we can pray that for each other, and we can pray that for ourselves, and we ought to. So Paul prays for illumination, but then he zeroes in on three particular things that he's asking God to really um, bring home to us in our hearts. And notice what he says here. He's praying that, number one, you may know what is the hope of his calling. Secondly, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And then thirdly, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So that you may know, number one, the hope of his calling, number two, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and number three, the exceeding greatness of his power. This is what the apostle uh, believes that we need. So that's what he's praying for. Number one, that you may know the hope of his calling. You know, we, we have been called to something so great, so grand, so glorious, that sometimes it, it escapes us how amazing it is. But what Paul is, is praying for here is that we would have an understanding when he says, you know, that you might know the hope of your calling, the idea is that we would understand how great our calling is. Oh, the fact that we are the called of God, this is, this is amazing. This is astounding. This is so just, 
you know, unbelievable that I would be called by God. What is that calling? What is the hope of the calling? Well, there are many aspects to it, but I'll just mention four. First of all, and we've talked about this before, but I'll bring it up again. First of all, we've been called to be God's children. We are the sons of God. We are the daughters of God. We're in relationship with God, the creator of all things, the uh, infinite almighty God is our dad. He's our Abba or Papa. He's, he's this, uh, he's our parent in that most intimate sense. We've become that. We've been called into this relationship with him. See, this is amazing. How great is that to be a child of God? And especially when we contrast where we previously were. And in the second chapter of this epistle, when Paul again is zeroing in on the great things God has done for us, he shows that we have gone, really, we've gone from the, the lowest possible place, dead in trespasses and sins, to be uh, exalted to the highest possible position seated together in the heavenly places in Christ. But in this, we've become God's children. And John, again, in his first epistle, you remember in the third chapter, maybe, where he says this, he says, behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. For John, this is astounding. It's like, can you believe it? That's kind of what he's you know, expressing, can you believe it that we have actually been called the children of God? What kind of love is that? That God would take us who were formerly rebels, that he would take us who lived our lives spitting in his face and shaking our fist, you know, before him, defying him, that he would take us and that he would make us his sons and daughters and pour out all of the blessings that a good Father pours upon his sons and daughters. So we're called into this relationship. But secondly, we're called saints. The hope of his calling. We're called saints. The root word for saint is the word holy. God has called us to holiness. He's called us to holiness. And although there are exhortations, be holy because I am holy, and we'll get to that exhortation part of it, but for right now, all it's saying is God's called us to holiness, meaning God's doing that. That's where he's bringing us to. He's bringing us to holiness. So we who were steeped in sin and unrighteousness and unholiness, God has called us, the hope of our calling, he's called us to holiness. He's bringing us into this place of holiness, this place where we can commune with him. And in holiness, there's also a wholeness that comes. You see, because of sin, our lives are depleted. Because of sin, our lives are, are wrecked. And we're, uh, we're unhealthy in so many ways. And we're unwholesome. But God is bringing through holiness, he brings wholesomeness to us. This is part of his calling. But then he's also called us to be his servants. Now in 
today's way of thinking, being a servant isn't a privileged position, is it? It's actually a position for the underprivileged. Uh, But in God's economy, being a servant is, that's the most important thing. And he's called us his servants. We are the servants of God. When God speaks fondly of uh, people throughout history, in the scriptures, he refers to them as my, my servant, my servant Moses, or my servant Abraham, or in regard to Jesus, behold my servant. God's called us to be his servants. You know, he's actually also called us to be his friends. You think of Jesus who said, I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I'm calling you friends because everything the father has shown me, I've revealed that to you. Friends are intimate. Friends share deep things. Friends even share secret things. Jesus said, I'm calling you friends. God has called us into friendship. But then finally, and this isn't exhaustive because we could keep adding to this, but we don't have time. But finally, God's called us. And and again, Paul's objective here is that we might know the hope of his calling. God has called us to be kings and priests and to rule and reign with Christ forever. Talk about something mind-boggling. He's called us to be kings and priests, and we shall reign with him forever and ever on the earth. You know, when we realize the greatness of our calling, this is... um, part of, I think, what Paul's intention is, when we realize how great our calling is, that would then motivate us not to get wrapped up or distracted by or weighed down in these lesser insignificant kinds of things that so often occupy our lives to the exclusion of enjoying what we've been called to. You know, that's the big battle that we all have to struggle with, isn't it? That, um, you know, that all of these other distracting things are always working to take us away from that more wonderful thing of, of the communion that God has called us into, that, that fellowship that we have with him. But when I realize how, how great this calling is, it's like everything else is, you know, Okay, that that might be fine, but it doesn't compare to this. There's nothing like this. So that means that I'm going to then be investing myself primarily in those other things. Because those are the things that matter. Those, of course, are the eternal things. So this is where the prayer begins, that they may know the hope, that you may know the hope of his calling. And then secondly, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? We talked a little bit about this previously, but what Paul is praying for here is, again, that we would know how much God values us, that we are of great value to him. Remember, I mentioned a few weeks back uh, those parables in You can find them in Matthew 13 and other places, but the parable of the the pearl of great price and then the parable of the treasure, the treasure that was uh, hidden in a field. And when a man discovered it, he went and he sold all that he had to purchase the field to obtain the treasure. And I pointed out how quite often we 
we interpret that as uh, the gospel is the treasure and we're the ones who do everything we, we have to get the gospel and obtain the treasure, but that's not an accurate picture. The picture is really that of Jesus who gave everything he had to purchase the world to obtain the treasure and the treasure is you. We are the treasure. And we need to know. Paul wants us to understand. He's praying that we would have this illumination that we would know how much God values us. How precious we are to him. Like that pearl of great price. Like that treasure. We're told by Peter that we were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. The word precious, you know, it implies rarity. Something is precious uh, when it's rare. So we have uh, precious stones. They're rare. Diamonds. You didn't just, you know, walk down the street and find diamonds. And we have precious metals, gold, silver, platinum, things like this. Uh, You know, this isn't easily attainable. This stuff is rare. And so we consider it precious. Well, God speaks of the blood of Jesus as the precious blood of Jesus. There's nothing like it. It is, there's nothing that compares to it. And because of its rarity, in one sense, it is the most valuable substance. It was God's most valuable substance. And he took that which was most valuable to him and he purchased us with it. That's the price tag he put on it. That is supposed to show us how valuable we are to him. And so Paul, that's his prayer for the saints in Ephesus. That's Uh, the Spirit's prayer for us, that we would know what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. You are highly valued by God. You're precious to him. You mean something to him. You're special. And let me just say this, for those of you that might not feel that way, Maybe you feel like you're, you're not valued by anybody. Maybe you feel like you're not special in any way. Maybe and that's, that's transferred over to your thinking about God. Well, you know, nobody else values me. Nobody else cares about me. Nobody else loves me. Why would God care about me? Why would God love me? Well, he does. And he proved it. He proved it by giving the most valuable thing, the blood of his son to purchase you as his own prized possession. And Paul is asking that we would be illuminated by the Spirit to, to understand this. And you know, it's true, isn't it? We, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. We need that, that uh, supernatural revelation to come our way. Where just suddenly something happens where we know that we know that we're loved like we never knew it before. We know that we know our, our destiny and, and the future glory like we never knew it before. 
That's that, that illuminating work of the Spirit that Paul is praying for. And then thirdly, that we might know what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us. The exceeding greatness of his power. What is the power that he's talking about here? He's talking about the power of the resurrection. Now think about this. If, if you were asked to say when it was that God showed his greatest demonstration of power, most of us would probably be tempted to, and justifiably so, uh, point back to creation. Because after all, I mean, that is an amazing demonstration of power, that God speaks the universe into existence. That's power. That's unfathomable power. And so we, we would understandably, justifiably say, well, you know, God demonstrated his greatest act of power when he created the universe. Paul says, no, it wasn't when he created the universe. As awesome as that power was, there was a greater power extended, and it was the power that raised Jesus from the dead. Wow, that's amazing. You see, the power that raised Jesus from the dead, it was a power that had to overcome the power of sin. It was a power that had to overcome Satan. It was a power that had to overcome death itself. And it did. And that is the power that Paul says is at work toward us who believe. So sin that has a grip on us that we cannot naturally free ourselves from, nor can we enlist the help of any other human being uh, or all other human beings to free ourselves from that. Sin that has its grip on us so tightly that we can never... uh, free ourselves from that grip, Christ breaks that power of sin over our lives. That same power that raised Jesus from the dead works in us to break that power of sin. So we're no longer bound to sin. We're no longer under its dominion. And the same is true with the dominion and the authority and the power of Satan. We're no longer under his power. But think of the world itself. Think of how the world, you know, John tells us in his first epistle, I can't believe I've, I've quoted five times from First John today unintentionally, but it all just keeps fitting. Um, you know, John tells us that the whole world lies in the grip of the evil one. And all you got to do is look at human history to see that that is true. The world lies in the grip of the evil one. Think of all of the evil that has transpired throughout the history of man. Think of the tyrannies that have come. Think of the oppression. Think of uh, just the, the horrific things and, and these evil powers that have, that have at times risen up and um, almost just engulfed the entire planet. And the, the effort you know put forth to try to push these evil forces back. I think of uh, the the forces that were um, aligned together back at the time of the Second World War, the, the, the power of evil that had come together and 
the, the long and arduous and unbelievably difficult struggle of breaking that, that power of evil that was unleashed on the planet. And the, these evil men, I always marvel, you know, how does one man get the allegiance of an entire nation of people and bring them under his control for evil? How does that happen? Well, my point is that evil is so powerful. Sin is so powerful. And of course, Satan is behind these things. And Satan holds the world, like I said, in his grip. But remember, Jesus sent the apostle Paul with the gospel to do what? He sent him to turn people from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. And that's what is working on our behalf. It's the power of the resurrected Christ to free us from the power of the devil. Jesus sets us free from captivity to sin and to Satan. And ultimately, Jesus gives us the victory over death. No one can escape death. No one can shrug it off. No one can, you know, resist it. You know, there's no person that can just stand up and say, I'm not going to die. Death will not have power over me. Oh, you could say that all you wanted, but, you know, you could drop dead in mid-sentence <laughs> because you don't have any control over that, right? Right? These are, these are the powers that have dominated humanity. Sin, Satan, and death. Jesus broke the power of sin, Satan, and death in his resurrection. When he came up, and then Paul goes on and he, he talks here about how he's been seated at God's right hand, far above principalities and powers. And pray for me this week because I want to talk about that next week and I want to do it justice and I don't even know if it's possible um, to do it justice, what it says, but it's that picture of Christ having absolute and total authority over all powers. But Paul says that they might know the exceeding greatness of his power, that you might know the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he demonstrated when he raised Christ from the dead. That's the power that's at work in your life. That's the power that's at work in our lives. This is why we're going to be set free. This is why we're going to be holy. This is why we're going to attain glory because of that resurrected power that's at work in us. And so you see, these things, the apostle like I said earlier, he, he's praying, Lord, help them to know this. Help them to know you and help them to know these things, not just in theory, but help them to know these things as a real experience in their own lives. And how does he go about it? He goes about it by praying. And so this is what we can do. We can pray for each other. We can pray for ourselves. And we see that God wants to 
This is a, a revelation of his will. He wants these things to be ours and we need to pray for one another that they, that they are ours. We need to pray for ourselves. We need to pray this stuff in. Again, not, don't be content just to hear it, but let's pray it in. Let's pray it for each other. And don't be afraid to pray it for yourself. Sometimes people get funny ideas about things like prayer, like, well, you know, if I pray for myself, that's probably selfish and I don't want to be selfish, so I can't pray for myself. You know, I'm, I'm really selfish. I pray for myself all the time. <laughs> and I pray for myself because I know better than anybody else how much prayer I really need. So you can pray for yourself and you can pray for me too. And I'm praying for you and let's all pray for each other. And what are we praying? We're praying these things right here. Open the eyes of our hearts, Lord. Lord, let us see this stuff. Let us, let us just really know it. You see, that's the thing. There are too many people in the church that are operating purely on head knowledge. They, they know it all up here or they know bits and pieces of it up here, but it hasn't made its way to the heart. Open the eyes of our hearts, Lord. Like I said, yes, of course, we need the head. We're not dismissing the head. We need to use our minds. We need to use the intellect, but it doesn't stop at the intellect. It must go to my heart. It must go to our hearts because that's where the transformation then occurs when it comes to my heart. And so, like Paul prayed for the Ephesians, we pray for one another that these things would be true for us, that we would experience God in the way he desires to be experienced and that we would know by experience the things that he wants us to know. The hope of our calling, the riches of his uh, inheritance in the saints and the exceeding greatness of his power working in us who believe. So Lord, do that for us today, we ask. Lord, we thank you that you have shown us how to pray. You've, you've shown us your will in prayer. We thank you, Lord, that these things you desire for us, and that gives us the confidence that as we seek them out, they're going to come to us. And so, Lord, we need, we, we let you know freely today that we need the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you. Lord, we need you to come and we need you to reveal yourself to us. Lord, we need the eyes of our heart to be enlightened. And so, Lord, enlighten us. Lord, come and make yourself known to us in powerful and distinctive ways that are going to forever transform us. Lord, help us to know the hope of our calling the high, high privilege of being the children of God. Help us to know that, Lord. Help us, Lord, to know how valued we are by you. And Lord, I, I wanna pray especially today for those here that might 
be feeling worthless, those that might be feeling that they're of no value to anybody, Lord, that they would know that you highly value them. Lord, I pray for all of us that we would know in our lives the exceeding greatness of your power at work, freeing us from sin and from Satan. And Lord, thank you ultimately for that victory over death. So work by your spirit today. Help us, Lord, throughout the week to pray for one another. Do your work.